Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Good morning or, or afternoon as we just hit noon today. Um, thank you all very much for attending. Uh, today is going to be our first time doing the pro bono as a new lawyer. And the question is, how do I start? So we're going to be um, talking with a great panel today um, in regards to getting some practice tips about where to start with pro bono, things to keep in mind, and um, any other questions that you have. So as Noah mentioned, feel free to use the Q&A um, feature. We'll do our best to integrate those questions into our talk today, and if not, we'll um, save them until the end. Um, but please feel free again to use that feature. So I'm now going to turn it over before we jump into questions to introducing our panel. So this morning we have Christelle with us, Virginia, and Meredith, and I have a short bio for each of them that I'm just going to read through. Um, so I'm going to start with Christelle. And Christelle, good morning. Um, Christelle Jean Felix is a New England Law School alumna licensed to practice law in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and in the state of New Hampshire. She's currently a senior associate at Casey Lundragan Burns PC, a boutique firm with offices in Salem and Boston. Um, there, her practice focuses on housing, real estate, and condominium law matters. Um, she has extensive experience and practice in assisting and advising residential retail and commercial landlords, um, property managers in all aspects of their operation, including lease drafting, summary process actions, fair housing, and general representation having practice in real estate and housing law since 2019. Um, outside of her work, she enjoys engaging in various socio-professional activities with the BBA, um, she co-chairs the New Lawyers Forum and with the MBLA, where she co-chairs their programs and professional development committee. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm next going to introduce Virginia. Um, so Virginia is the Director of Racial Justice Advocacy at the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute, or the MLRI. Mm -hmm which is an anti-poverty policy center and support center for civil legal aid in Massachusetts. And prior to rejoining the MLRI in 2020, she directed the immigration clinic at Suffolk Law School and then served as an asylum officer and training officer for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Citizenship and Immigration Services. Uh, she was also a staff attorney in MLRI's immigration practice group from 28 to 2000. 2011. Along with uh, Immigration Law, Virginia also has background in criminal defense, housing, family law, and extensive litigation, legislative and administrative advocacy experience, as well as coalition building um, and community outreach experience. And um, before attending Northeastern Law School, she served as a congressional aide to Senator Ed, um, Edward Markey, and has served as a longtime board member um, at Citizens for Juvenile Justice. Currently, she um, serves as a co-chair of the BBA's Delivery of Legal Services Committee and a member of the Civil Rights Steering Committee. Good morning. Or good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not quite sure what the, since we did, just hit the 12 o'clock. Um, and the our final panelist that I'm going to introduce is Meredith. So Meredith is the director of pro bono at Brown Rudnick, um, where she um, develops and manages the firm's pro bono practice in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, Meredith also serves as the executive director of the Brown Rudnick Charitable Foundation Corporation, which provides support to organizations seeking to improve education in under-resourced communities. Um, prior to joining Brown Rudnick, Meredith served as an associate director um, LLM and international programs at Northeastern uh, University School of Law. Um, she practiced as a trial attorney for children and families, uh, the Children and Family Law Division of the Committee for Public Counsel Services in Boston, and as an associate at Baker McKenzie in New York. 
Um, she's currently the co-chair of the delivery of legal services section of the BBA, and she received her JD from Pace University and her LLM from Columbia Law School. So thank you to Hi, all. Everyone. Good afternoon. Um, thank you all. Uh, as a longer introduction, but I just wanted to say thank you all for being with us today. Um, and I, I hope those bios did you guys justice, but if you have anything else to add, feel free. Um, but I thought today that we could just jump in with some questions that we have about pro bono work um, and kind of just how to get started is the main question. So the, the first thing on the mind is, could you guys tell us a little bit about the type of pro bono work that you do? And maybe that includes the question of what was the first pro bono project you worked on? Um, if it was um, memorable and kind of how that came about. So anything that you can help us with how you got into pro bono work and, and what types of work you keep up with now. Um, I'll start. <laughs> okay, so um, technically speaking, my pro bono advocacy started before I was a lawyer. I was a paralegal um and uh, for a nonprofit organization and i was doing at the time immigration um, matters uh, abuse prevention um, cases and um, essentially helping vawa victims obtain status in the U U u.s and so that's where my passion grew for it and so i eventually went to law school and uh, became a lawyer I did a thing, right? And so um, my first um, case as an attorney was um, uh, kind of unique. I was working at a firm which allowed me to have community service hours and uh, we could take days off for that, which was really, really um, nice that the firm supported, you know, people who wanted to engage in pro bono services. And so I would go to... Um, volunteer with the Volunteer Lawyers Project, the Women's Bar Foundation, and kind of just get involved wherever I can to get additional experience. And um, uh, my first case was uh, uh, actually with the Volunteer Lawyers Project. It was kind of a lawyer, a lawyer for the day um, program at the Boston Housing Court, which was madness. It was the first my first experience <laughs> because if you've ever been to Boston Housing Court on a Thursday, Pre-COVID, um, it's absolutely a zoo, but that was my first experience and um, it did not dissuade me because I eventually pivoted into housing law and I've made a career out of it. So it was absolutely a memorable experience. <laughs> I can go next. Um, uh, right after law school, I was in private practice doing criminal defense and sort of things, anything civilly um, out of those cases, out of that office. And um, a gentleman walked in and wanted help with also a housing case, but it was a housing appeal case. Um, and so it was in front of the appeals court. Um, and uh I sort of knew that that wasn't in our real house, but he was really desperate. He was in public housing. And so I agreed to do it pro bono. And I explained, you know, sort of my level of expertise in the area, how long I'd been there, but, you know, told him, I gave him some advice to find other attorneys and to kind of come back to me um, if he couldn't. But there was an appeals deadline. I think we had to file in time. Um, and so because I had not had experience, I was mostly just going to district courts um, and immigration court. Um, I sort of was encouraged to take an appeals case and sort of try to hone my skills in a different area. And so um, I did. I lost. <laughs> it was not a great case. I knew it wasn't going to be a great case. Um, but it really... Um, and for, I guess, you know, the first year of law, uh, practicing law, you're really stretching yourself. Um, and so it was an opportunity to stretch myself in a way um, and to argue a case, to write an appeal um, that was not, you know, a real case with real people, real consequences, and had an opportunity just to have a person who would have done it by himself or not filed an appeal helped him in that way. So that was my first um experience and I do pro bono. Um, I can go next. So my first experience was as a first year uh, associate at um, 
in a big law firm in New York City. And I was a corporate and securities lawyer at the time trying to wrap my head around being a transactional attorney and learning what that is. But I was really uh, wanted to find a way to be able to fit my passion for public interest work into into my schedule. And so I was able to work on a Violence Against Women Act um, case. And it fit really well. I mean, in thinking about how to weave pro bono into a portfolio of work, oftentimes, you know, there are projects that you can do. Um, you know, in addition to the work that you're doing with, with your billable matters. And it was a way to have direct client rep, uh, contact at a very early stage in my career, which was really rewarding. Um, I think what I remember all these years later the most is the first meeting when we met our client. She was very timid and nervous and just throughout the process, helping her gain her independence and how empowering that whole process of getting her work authorization. And I was just really struck with how life-changing that was and how we were just there to support her, but seeing how her own development and um, her own growth was just really a a pleasure to be a part of. And I knew I wanted to do more of that. And that really stayed with me. Um, I also remember kind of walking by the person who did pro bono full-time at the office and being like, oh, wow, that's a really neat job. And so I always had that in the back of my head of wanting to, um, you know, be able to see how to, to do that myself. So it was a really influential uh, period for me in my career, just being exposed to pro bono at a, a junior level. Great. Thank you all very much. So I'm going to flip it to modern day now. Can you guys talk a little bit about how you come across pro bono and your current jobs minus this panel today? Um, but <laughs> if you could talk a little bit about whether or not you're um, just how that is fitting into your current role or if it's something that um, is more so something that you're handing off to others or, or things like that and just kind of how it fits in day to day. Virginia looks like she's ready to go. Either one. I mean, I work for legal services. We're the support center for legal services. I don't do direct representation now. We're doing policy um, work and supporting the attorneys who are doing legal services. Um, so I think part of a lot of my pro bono honestly comes from family and friends and getting client cases that way, which is not always ideal. But there are a lot of places, um, because I do like direct representation, I do often miss it. Um, uh, I agree to do like re- legal services often does clinics, um, whether it's immigration clinics or know your rights clinics. Um, so I, I'm always happy to participate in sort of those easy kind of one and done things um, because I don't, you know, as a legal service attorney, if you're doing direct representation, I probably wouldn't encourage you to take pro bono individual representation cases um, based on the work and sort of making sure you have time to recharge yourself. But I think there are opportunities like Know Your Right presentations or um, these limited clinics. And then there's also um, mass legal answers where you can just answer questions online for low income folks. Um, And I can put that information about how you can access that. But anybody anybody who's barred in um, Massachusetts can answer legal questions online. Um, So those are the, the ways that I still participate. Uh, I participate similarly too through mostly clinics and referrals. Um, I have taken on private clients and just like Virginia mentioned, it can be draining, but it is, you know, it is a way for me to keep up with, you know, the passion of helping um, individuals who otherwise would not be getting the help. So um, uh, every once in a while, I take on a case um, for individual representation as well. Um, and luckily, my firm does support that those efforts. Um, and otherwise, um, just going through the in the community, um, being a panelist, answering questions. Um, we just had, uh, for instance, a, a landlord and tenant. Um, 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 forum, um, for instance, in Salem the other day where landlords and tenants came and got information and pamphlets and just general advice on various matters that they're dealing with. And it's just on that limited basis, they come for the day and seek out um, information. 
So that is one of the ways that I stay active through the Essex County Bar Association. Um, I, I've done similar efforts with the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association. Um, so there's there's plenty of ways to get to continue to be involved currently. <clears throat> um, since my day-to-day -day is in the pro bono world, I think I do spend most of my time trying to find matches for other people to help engage them in pro bono work. But um, myself, I, I probably at this point do more direct involvement in the larger legal cases, our impact cases, you know, reviewing briefs and working with our lawyers internally to make sure that the work product that we partner with um, our legal services organizations, I really enjoy that. Now, um, but, you know, we definitely, you know, if there are clinics and if I can, you know, help someone with a naturalization application or, you know, I definitely try to, but usually it's a lot of coordinating and figuring out what makes other people want to engage in this kind of work. I think, you know, recognizing that lawyers are very busy people and we all have a lot going on. I think it's trying to understand what's going to make someone want to do, you know, something you know, on top of everything else that they have to do. And so I'm really always trying to to find those matches. I think there's a there's a great need, but you know, someone might be passionate about a housing case and someone else may be really wanting to work with the domestic violence, you know, family experiencing domestic violence. So and and both are fine, right? And you don't have to, there's no judgment about what the areas you're passionate about. Um so it, but it is something about kind of figuring out what makes someone tick and what's the the area that they're gonna want to um you know, pursue in their, in their extra time or when there's maybe not even extra time, but adding it still nevertheless. So that's, uh, that's sort of how I engage with pro bono work on a daily basis. Okay. Thank you all. So it's a, it's a little bit different ac across the board for everyone then. So uh, as a follow-up question for Virginia and Christelle, since you guys work more in the, the public um, interest space or public service space, how do you guys keep that energy with you when you're going into new um, pro bono work, um, if it happens to be similar to your day-to-day -day work and, and things like that? Um, so I admittedly have stayed recently more in my comfort zone. I haven't gone to different practice areas. I think that is a way that I streamline my energy and make sure that I'm able to give 110% without um, I don't want to say with minimal effort, it, there's always effort to advocate zealously, but it is easier for me to do that and manage a full-time schedule when I know um, what I'm talking about. So um, recently, that's what I've done. I think earlier in my career, I ventured out into different areas of law to get more experience. Um, but as you get busier, um, for me, I should say, I found that staying kind of in my wheelhouse and seeing where I can provide information that way has been has been helpful for me to not um, overly extend myself. Yeah, I would say I'm very similar. Uh, <laughs> and that, um, I think at the beginning, like I said, I took a case uh, that I was not familiar with. I'm always, I was happy sort of to learn as much as I could when I was a newer attorney. And I really do encourage you to do that. Um, and um, I think it's really important, I think, if you're doing legal service or public service um, to really recharge and make sure, you, you know, you kind of protect your peace and that you're able to kind of enter a space with the type of energy and empathy and level of humility that you need and compassion. So um, I make sure that I'm good <laughs> and in a good place before I engage. And like Christelle, I will... I, I sort of stay in my immigration uh, sort of lane because that's what I sort of know very well. So I've been happy to participate in sort of immigration clinics or provide guidance to newer attorneys. So I still have some students asking me questions. So I sort of will still field um, and sort of try to mentor other attorneys. And so I think as your uh, practice evolves and as you become uh, stronger, uh, you know, it really will depend on sort of what's happening in your life. And that's how I do it. 
Yeah, that that sounds like um, great advice, especially I am myself in the newer attorney. So those are helpful tips to keep in mind going forward. Of What I'm hearing, and if I'm summarizing both of you correctly, is more so know what areas you're experienced in and use that to your advantage so that um, you have more skills to be able to help um, pro bono matters in that specific space um, and are just generally more knowledgeable about that. Um, as you as you gain a little bit more experience down the road. Um, okay, th- thank you all for that. So um, I guess the question for everyone that I would love to ask is, um, how did everyone get their start in pro bono advocacy? So we talked a little bit about your backgrounds um, and what your first pro bono projects were, but um, do you recall that there was a specific time when you started really um, advocating for others to take um, more involvement with pro bono? Um, for example, Meredith, it, it sounds like in your role, um, pro bono is day to day for you. Um, and it sounded like that was where your interest was back in the day. So um, if any of you guys have any um, stories to share um, about that time frame or, or any examples. Sure. So. Um... For my experience, I have um, coming from a corporate background and being a corporate lawyer for many years. And then I always say I swung swung the pendulum very far um, and became a child welfare lawyer. And so having, you know, sort of understanding the demands in each environment, they're they're equally as stressful and just in different ways. In some, and so understanding, um, having experience both personally, I really rely on those experiences a lot in the work that I do now because there's such a great need and, and there's so much um, to understand when we, we always partner with a legal services organization on a pro bono matter. And that was just one tip I would say um, to kind of build off what the other panelists were saying. If you are new and you're going to try something that, you know, may not be in your wheelhouse or your area that you have deep experience in, always ask questions and understand before you accept an engagement about, is there a staff attorney at the legal services organization? How involved are they? Because the structure of um, various legal services organizations, they do differ. And so understanding, making sure that you ask those questions up front to make sure you have the support and the structure around you know, I think it's very helpful. And it's just something, um, particularly if you're not going, you know, if you're, if you're kind of going directly to a legal services organization, rather than going through your, like your law firm or another employer. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, and I, I understand that those legal services, um, the referral services are a great place to um, get work from. Right. And it's really understanding like uh, the legal services organizations that we work with. They're, they're the experts like VLP really understands, you know, the needs of the community. They understand they do the intake. So make sure that the clients are eligible and that we're serving the people that, you know, that are in the greatest need. And so we're kind of all work together um, in like a larger ecosystem to try to serve, you know, uh, communities in Boston that that need um, legal representation. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. And some of them also offer, like Meredith saying, mentorship. So you're not by yourself uh, in the case. Um, But for myself, I have to say, um, I sort of went to law school uh, for a purpose. And like, I knew that public service um, and giving back is sort of what I wanted to do. And that's why I sought a legal uh, degree. I am the daughter of immigrants and I really saw how my parents were treated, especially my mom was being treated, and I wanted to be um, a voice. And I was, as my bio said, I worked for Ed Markey, and I did constituent services, and I would see how, you know, the government interacted with uh, social services and how people were treated, and I would see how the business entities would work and interact, and I just thought... I wanted to learn the skills that the business folks had to sort of represent people like my mother. And so that's why I went to law school. Um, and so I knew that that was my passion. And so I knew eventually um, that that's where I was going to go. Uh, I started off as private practice because, you know, uh, financially and sort of with my family circumstances, that was what worked. But when a position came available in legal services that I felt like I could make work, um, I took it. And so, and I, I sort of never looked back. Um, 
because there is something when you follow your passion, uh, things do fall into place with a little bit of gum and glue and <laughs> but fall into place. No, that that's really wonderful. Thank you. And I, I echo what you said, that if you find a place that you have passion for that, it definitely makes um, going to work a highlight of the day. Um, and I, I find, at least in my experience, that pro bono work can be really um, rewarding. So a broader question to everyone um, on the panel today is, what would be the if there's one or two words that come to mind for um, like the most important aspects of pro bono work that you found as a, as a younger associate um, or just starting out in your legal career, um, if there were just a couple of things you're going to say about that and just like, to advocate it for, or kind of like find a way um, to know how, like just how important it is um, in terms of getting that experience when you're, you're first starting out. And I think we talked a little bit about that. Um, about, for example, um, Virginia, you mentioned the opportunity for um, mentoring by working on pro bono matters with um, uh, senior team members too. Um, yeah, so I'll take the lead on this one. So I think um, and engaging in pro bono work at early in your career is pivotal because you may discover a passion that you may, didn't even realize that you have uh, a skill set, uh, you know, a level of advocacy that you didn't know you, 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 you were capable of, um, you know, feeling con so connected to you. So I think, you know, in terms of really defining your career, um, but also just honing in your skills, it's twofold, right? You, you can, um, change pivot careers um, in a way that you didn't expect to. Um, when you're really young out of law school, sometimes, you know, Virginia says she had a mission, right? Some people don't know what they want. They go through the process, they get to the end of the finish line, they just get a job, right? And so, because you have to pay these loans, but um, sometimes you don't know what you want yet. And so I think it's a great opportunity to try different things and um, figure out who you are as a professional. Um, it's an opportunity to, in a way, be independent because your firm, your firm has your back. And if you find a good firm, it's, it's, it's always good to be in a great work environment and to have a, a, a firm that supports you in every way and promotes your development. But you're your biggest fan, your biggest supporter, your biggest advocate. And so if you don't commit to developing yourself as an attorney to the fullest extent, you know, you could be missing out. And pro bono is just such a great way to do that. Um, it's a great way to put yourself um, on the forefront of um, legal professionals to get your um, reputation, um, to get notoriety. It's a great way to put your firm on the, on the forefront of that as well, which also could yield some benefits for you in the long run, right? So I think the benefits are um, limitless if you really commit to it, you really can benefit personally professionally and you know emotionally very profoundly you can there's I've had so many cases that have moved me from um again prior to going to law school through the state you know I, I've been I've my immigration cases are some of the most memorable cases I've worked on I've you know helped families reunite children who had um, very rare diseases and third world countries come to the U.S. based on humanitarian conditions to seek the medical assistance that they need. You never forget that. Right. And so, you know, just follow your heart um, and develop yourself as much as you can with pro bono work. I love that. I think that's exactly such a good way to summarize. I always tell people that you can do good and at the same time you know, receive some benefits from your pro bono work. Like it doesn't make it any less of like a good, you know, thing to do just because you're developing professionally, you're, you're building your network, um, you know, pro bono matters. You have the same ethical obligations to complete them like you would do a billable matter. And so you can demonstrate the same skills, right? Being 
you know, as a very junior lawyer, you can be show that you're responsive, that you're responsible and dependable and that you, you know, you can connect well with clients. And those are all going to, you know, demonstrate a really good core skill set for partners and you know, supervisors that you work for at your, at your organization. Um, I also think that it's just a tool in your toolkit. So if you are trying to work with a certain group and you have not been able to, or you're trying to work with a certain senior lawyer, um, ask them to do a pro bono project with you. Ask, you. ask them if they'll supervise or figure out if they do pro bono already. And that could be a really great way. Instead of just having coffee, it's just a small pro bono matter, even if it's only a few hours, can leave a really good impression and make a connection that's organic and, and meaningful. Um, so I just encourage you to think about it as a tool uh, in your career progress. And, and also, you know, it, it's a great way to, to actually get fulfillment and job satisfaction as well. I, I love to see some of our, you know, our most senior lawyers at our law firm you know, some of the busiest folks that are at our firm, but it's often in times they are the same people that do pro bono, right? It's it's very interesting to see how, you know, people just learn. And maybe one year it's, it's fewer hours in pro bono that they do um, because they, you know, they have other projects that are taking up a lot of their time, but then they come back and, you know, increase their, their pro bono engagement the next year. You know, you never get kicked out of wanting to do pro bono, you're always welcome. And this is a profession, we're all part of the legal profession. Um, and we sort of all have this obligation to, to, to take on this work. I don't know if I can add any more to that. Those were both great answers. And I, I agree that, you know, pro bono means for the public good. And I believe that, you know, we go to law school, we get these, this incredible education, we have these incredible skills. And we should utilize those skills um, really for the public good in any way that we can. So, you know, it could be a great humanitarian case, but it also could be, you know, like if your skill set is intellectual property and there's, you know, a low income person who's trying to start a, you know, a, a startup company that you need to help with, you know, the sort of the mundane writing of like bylaws or whatever they do to startups. I don't know, right? Like you can utilize your skills there. So, um, I think when you're given such great, like when you're given such a great education, when you're given such great skills and tools, like we should utilize them and for the public good. So, and I, and sort of what Christelle said as well, like I've, I always feel like I've received more um, from a pro bono case that I've given and I've learned more about myself um, about the law, about what, how I define justice and fairness, mm-hmm. um, what I think about society and community. So I just feel like um, you really do get, uh, I don't know, you really learn as well. And it really, it does further your legal education. But thank you all for that. No, those are, those are really great answers. Um, so thank you for those. Um, I'm going to jump into a little bit um, more nitpicky questions on some types of pro bono work that you can do or, or what you guys would advise. So it's going to be a little bit of a change from our last discussion and a little bit more targeted. Um, but I'd love to start with it. And this was kind of hinted at earlier, but um, are any of you able to talk about um, a pro bono matter that you took that was outside of your set of skills um, when you were first starting out as an attorney? Um, and if so, were there any particular tools that you used to navigate those process? Um, so for instance, uh, I'm an intellectual property attorney, but if I take something outside of that group, it would be really great to have some advice on what tools to use and what resources. Um, I can take one. I mean, this is a little bit one case I took was a business immigration case. I had been used to doing family-based and removal. And so I agreed to do a business case, um, immigration case for um, a very small business. Uh, And I think the tools you really need to do is like, first of all, I was very open and honest um, sort of about my sort of level expertise, 
why I was provide why I was willing to do this pro bono. Um, and then I um, I think you need some humility, like Meredith said. I asked lots of questions to other people in the field, and my network used my networks there to help me. Um, I think when you're a new attorney. Uh, you can get overwhelmed. And I always remember one older attorney or more seasoned attorney telling me, like, we've all been an attorney. Like, we've all had our first day in court. We've all had our first sort of um, experience giving a taking a deposition or something. So just remembering that, like, everybody goes through this and it's sort of um, part of the process. And so the skills that I had to develop, um, and especially I think with immigration and you work with uh, lots of people who speak different languages, is being able to break down really complex issues in simple terms and making it accessible in a way that made you not feel like you're talking down to somebody, but really just meeting them at their level and being able to. And that sort of helped me um, that sort of helped me understand also the process, which is very complex, um, and then being able to share that with somebody. And so some of the skills like um, we have, there's called Mass Legal Help, which offers plain English answers to legal questions. So I'd say if you're going to try something that a substantive area that legal services covers, go there to hear it, like the plain English language answers to things. Um, but I think that was one thing that I really learned. I also learned that I didn't want to do business immigration, <laughs> uh, that it was uh, just not in my, um, yeah, I just didn't get the sort of same uh, kind of results. That I, not the results, but I just, you know, I just realized like this just was not where um, I wanted to spend my time and I could help people in other ways. But um, I thought that, yeah, that was one of us, something I did early on was a business immigration case. I can agree. It's not as fulfilling. Yeah. <laughs> I've done that too. Um, not all the fuels that you get from, you know, family immigration or humanitarian cases for sure. Um, I would add and say um, joining a listserv. Um, so I joined the one for the Women's Bar Foundation and the um, um, I, I've kind of never looked back. They they they're so active. There's knowledgeable people in that group that really help navigate all family law issues. And so <clears throat> I think that was um, a very important resource for me to use anytime I had a question. Um, you know, professors, there's one of the professors that are, are that's part of that list is um, Professor Karen Mitchell Munavar who practices exclusively in family law and teaches at New England Law as well. And she's so knowledgeable. She's so resourceful. She's always eager to help, always willing to be a mentor. And she jumps on every question that's asked in the group and just really provides guide guidance. Um, and she doesn't, she provides guidance. She, she connects you to the right people um, for, you know, anything that's out of her purview, which is very, very, very few things. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's one of the, I think one of the best resources I've had because a lot of the information um, when you're doing a case, for instance, especially if it's litigation focus um, and practice, it's different than in theory. So having somebody who's gone through the experience of, you know, running the course of, you know, family law lit litigation matter or, um, a 209A, getting, obtaining a 209A abuse prevention order of the sorts, it's just really, really helpful. So being able to have someone who does this day in and out um, really guide you through and say, you know, this is what you should know about this judge. This is what you should know about that. You know, the process in general is just really helpful. And so joining the listservs, I think, has been a very resourceful um, tool for me. Um, one thing I, I would just add, and I don't know if it directly relates to your, your question, but just, you know, if you are an IP lawyer or a securities lawyer like I was, and you're kind of switching gears to direct client representation on a matter, I just think always remembering, like, and thinking about, like, the client that you're working with and maybe what their resources are and kind of where they're, what, what's happening in their life, because you know, although this case may be like, you know, you're meeting at this time and you want them to show up with all the documents that they need, or maybe their cell phone or is broken, or maybe their train is running late. And just, you know, particularly, I think 
you know, I always remind our associates of this is that you kind of have to remember, you know, to meet your client where they're, where they're at that particular meeting. And so you may hope to get everything done in one meeting, but that may just not be possible because they may have, you know, if they're, you know, experiencing domestic violence issues, maybe they're just having a really hard day and they're just not able to converse with you about what's happening in their life. And so just thinking about, um, you know, you may need a different tool set in terms of client engagement than if you're just emailing a corporate client, you know, these, this is the list of things I need from you. And then they just email you back. Like that may not be some, some of our pro bono clients are absolutely, that's how they want to operate. We just did a citizenship workshop last week and some folks come to the meetings and they have everything ready and they are just, we are just there to help them. And they, they know, and then other people, they need that kind of plain English breaking down the forms um, so it very much varies, but I just think you you need to go into that, giving the the taking a pause and saying, okay, I got to figure out you know how this meeting's going to go, and not have a set of expectations that work for you, but rather what works for the client. Yeah, thank you. I I think that's a really great point to turn to some other considerations that um, we wanted to talk about today in terms of um, as you phrased it, Meredith, meeting your client where they're at. Um, so if anyone has any um, experiences that they're willing and or able to share regarding maybe some challenging um, clients that you've worked with in view of maybe there's some particularities regarding trauma that they've been through or just any other challenging circumstances, such as maybe they're not comfortable communicating over email and it's only in person or, or things like that. So if there are any examples that you guys could share along with the tools that you used on how to manage that, whether it was just on your own or if you asked questions to others or just like what level of mindfulness you brought into it or brought into the relationship dynamic. I mean, I think I can maybe, I think there's always just a level of humility and understanding and asking questions that's important to make, not to make assumptions. I think like Meredith said, there's, um, you know, people, um, I think a lot of uh, clients, especially for legal services, you know, are, are often triaging their life. And so we may think their legal case is sort of their biggest bleeder, but they're actually handling other things that they feel like are sort of the most important. So I think not, you know, not really judging people and figuring out sort of, like Marta said, meeting people where they are. And so understanding kind of what their needs are. Um, you know, I learned quickly never to just tell somebody to write an affidavit. Um, <laughs> you know, on their own yeah. or like think they understand, uh, uh, you know, what you're looking for. So just taking, being able to take the time to explain things, make people um, not just feel like they're a partner, but, you know, have them be a partner in their legal representation, having them understand what's going to happen, what their expectations are, being barely clear about expectations. You know, I, I would hear attorneys sort of, um, promising the world and I don't know I was like I don't know if I'm a grim reaper but like I can't you know at least I would be very clear about my limitations of what I could do and promise um but I you know I always wanted people to feel like they're a part of not feel like but be really part of their own representation so meeting people where they are and really having discussions and listening to folks um and always asking more questions and seeing, you know, what, you know, where we can, um, how we can build their case together. So I think just having humility, being curious, non-judgmental um, is probably some of the best tools. And I think being, a, I, I can't stress enough, being able to explain things in simple terms is such an incredible tool. Um, I would also add that. Um, when dealing with people who may have trauma and um, um, difficulty communicating and whatnot, I think that it's important to not just to uh, allow them to be part of the experience with, uh, and, and their own representation, because a lot of times they need their power, right? They need their power back. So that's important. So, but alongside of um, working to facilitate that, I think it's also important to set boundaries. I think um, 
you know, you can find yourself being extremely involved emotionally and um, overly exert yourself. If you don't set the boundaries, you can also end up doing work outside of the scope of what you agreed to do, um, right? So being really, really clear about what your boundaries are professionally, emotionally, but also just setting and writing the scope of representation, if it's going to be limited in any way, I think it's very important so that there is a written trail of what um, both sides expect in, because most of the time it goes well, you're doing good work, you're giving back to the community, but every once in a while, things may not work um, in your favor when you're doing a pro bono case. And sometimes it could even lead to complaint um if if whatnot i think you're probably more likely for that to happen in that setting than in your private practice for instance right so um very 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 much it's i think it's extremely important to streamline that by having a clear concise communication you know simple terms always being mindful of where um, the person you're helping is coming from their perspective coming with humility compassion but also very honest, candor, and, you know, you know, boundary setting ways, right? You just have to have that clear communication whenever you're engaging in those types of services. And I find it helps streamline the work and the relationship um, well, you know, um, there's trust issues, like Virginia mentioned, right? You don't want to overpromise, right? So having that expectation set out at the outset is extremely beneficial on both ends, if you are mindful of that. Yeah, thank you both for that. And um, Crystal, you made a really great point about that I wanted to hone in on, on the language differences. Um, I'd love to ask the group too, has there been a time where you've worked with um, a, a client who needed a translator um, or who um, maybe English wasn't their first language. And how did you go about that? Um, maybe a translator was a tool, um, but was there anything else that you found helpful or, or things that you would recommend keeping in mind for that? Um, yes, I think with language comes culture. Language can't, we can't talk about language without talking about culture and all those undertones. So um, I'm, um, keeping that in mind, I am resource, very resourceful in that sense. I, I speak um, French, Spanish, and Creole fluently. So I have uh, the ability to connect with a vast um, variety of, of, you know, people. But I think in developing um, the connections I've established through pro bono work, I've learned more than language. I've learned culture and I've learned you know, what meaning is attributed to to what in different settings, right? And so even me, I'm, I'm Haitian, and even coming from a different part of Haiti, you might have a different interpretation of, you know, versus a, a word, an expression, or anything of the sort. So being mindful of those nuances and really approaching everyone with humility, like Virginia said, is important because you, it's a learning experience each time. And, um, you know, I don't ever, regardless of knowing these, all of these languages, I still will never know more than my client needs at the time. So never overshadowing their needs, um, listening carefully and, you know, reframing as needed if, you know, the tr something is lost in translation. And um, I think that, the cultural undertone is learning that if you end up committing to um, pro bono services, which involves um, more minorities, like doing immigration work, you're going to work with a lot more minorities and um, um, obviously immigrants, um, you know, so of different backgrounds. So it, it naturally comes with that. So learning, committing to learning the cultural undertones is just as important as learning the language and communicating if you're interested in that part of it. And then otherwise, just using the resources available. The courts have um, um, translators in most languages that they can offer. So you can go through the court services to have somebody translate um, anything. Um, and you can also use services such as language line to get on the call and have things interpreted for you um, in the process of that. So just to make sure nothing is lost in translation since it's, you know, obviously really 
important that you help them advocate for themselves um, throughout the representation. I mean, I'm as an immigration attorney, I, I worked with, um, you know, multiple different cultures, multiple different languages. Um, and I think, I hope nobody shies away from it just because of a language difference. Um, I think it's an incredible opportunity, um, sort of, as Christelle said, um, to learn more. Um, uh, so I would say make sure that you have the resources, that you identify resources to assist you, like don't have their child or sibling or friend do their translation mm -hmm. for them, like really try to build it in. Uh, maybe work with other folks, you know, if you want to share resources financially or see if your firm allows it um, or see like what Christelle said, like if there's court uh using court interpreters, but try to get a, a really neutral party to be the interpreter. There's lots of great ones, even though you can use over the phone or through Zoom. Um, again, this is where being able to break down legal terms and legal language into simple, plain English is really helpful because before you translate anything, you really want it to be in simple, plain English and then have that translated into another language. Um, and you know, I think it's great if you're a multilingual. Um, I think it's an amazing, but I can also say as somebody, you know, who's represented people who speak tons of different languages, um, you know, it's just important to try to meet people where they are and sort of, again, enter with humility and ask lots of questions, lots of clarifying questions, because um, there's just no there's just no way anybody can be completely aware of every nuance. Like, like Christelle said, we're living on two different sides of Haiti. Like I didn't want to move to the South shore cause I grew up in the North shore. Um, and just thinking about the nuances of just living in like our small state of Massachusetts. Um, so just, you know, asking clarifying questions all of the time, what does it mean? I think, you know, some things can be, you know, what you expect, not to have also expectations of like what trauma would look like or how it's interpreted, like whether somebody's actually sad or depressed or what, um, because that all comes in. So you really just want to ask people questions and like listen to their answers and really be engaged with people that place um, in that way. But I think um, working with folks, uh, I don't know, I've also just found it to be really Again, a learning experience for me. Um, when I was in the asylum office, obviously we were interviewing people with lots of different languages. And so you learn how to say things in ways, you know, simply, and that really makes you understand the law and concepts very well if you can explain it really easily. Um, and then you learn sort of how other cultures and other ways and languages and sort of nuances and how important language and body language and all of these other ways that we communicate are. So I just say, make sure you have the resources ready and available so you know you can take these cases and do that well. Um, and then just, you know, build in some extra time. So an interview is going to take you more time, right? Consultations will take you more time. So just build in that, um, but don't shy away from, from it, I would say. And if you do have language skills, I'd say use them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you both for that. I'm much appreciated. Um, I just wanted to be mindful of the time. We have um, just under 10 mm -hmm. minutes left of the panel. It kind of flew by. Um, so if anyone in the audience has questions, feel free to put them in the, the Q&A chat and we'll um, make sure to address those before, before the end. Um, out of the questions that we have less left, there were a couple that I thought were really good themes just for us to talk about. Um, so the first one is um, regarding stigma of pro bono work. So I wanted to ask, have you guys ever seen that as um, a roadblock to representation? And I think an example is that in patent law, sometimes when we're working on an application for a pro bono um, client, we refrain from letting the patent office know that we're representing them on a pro bono basis. It's not required, but it is a great way for us to get recognition. But um, we've thought about the risk of potentially someone picking up that patent application and saying, oh, this is on a pro bono basis and seeing if there's a stigma attached with that. I think there are thoughts on either side where it's, oh, the a firm is helping a client with this, it, it 
that's really wonderful. But then the other side is, oh, it's like maybe it didn't get as much attention um, as some of other work that a firm would give or something like that. So, so there's pros and cons on either side. So I was wondering if you guys have like a, or have had a similar experience in your line of work with that. Um, I would say in, um, in my, in my position, uh, working in the pro bono department at a law firm, we really try not like our associates, as far as we're concerned, are evaluated on their complete body of work, you know, in performance evaluations. And we do not differentiate between, um, pro bono work and billable work, right? The skills and the legal nuances and the, you know, the, the, the performance you're, you know, that you need to perform is the same on pro bono matters as billable matters. So when our associates are evaluated, they are also evaluated equally on their pro bono matters and it's not um, divided out. So um, if I'm supervising on a pro bono matter, I can be solicited to provide um, an, you know, evaluation. So if someone does not do a good job on a pro bono matter, if they are not responsive to clients, if they, you know, blow by deadlines for an immigration matter, like, that will be reflected and that will be, you know, so, um, and I, I'm proud of that. And I think that's the right way to approach it because obviously we want, um, so that's an internal thing. I think externally, oftentimes when we're talking about our cases, we, you know, don't say, oh, this was a pro bono case. We just say, this is the work that we do in this area. So, um, you know, sometimes law firms want to, to announce that they did something pro bono, but we, more often than not, it's just, you know, this is the case we worked on this with, you know, mass, you know, MLRI, and we're proud of that work. And, you know, it's not about it being pro bono, it's that quality of the work. Um, I'm going to try to answer both the synonymous attendees question and my answer. So when I used to go work at Suffolk, um, we used to go into South Bay House of Correction and do know your rights and do intakes. And a lot of people would say, like, we don't want a free attorney. We know what we get. You know, um, you get what you pay for. And I think they were hearing a lot of those bad stories of maybe about public defenders, which often get a bad rap. And so a lot of attorney, a lot of clients were sort of resistant for, to receive our assistance, thinking they were going to get poor representation. Um, and so I think, you know, I used to, you know, just make sure that we present um, in a way that's professional and that we address that concern. Uh, I was never shied away from it. So if there's this like intangible barrier, I want to talk about it. And so I would mention that in our representation and sort of as Christelle had said of when you're doing your scope of representation, you know, I was very clear about, you know, what they should expect from me and what I expect from them. Um, and so I have had a lot of people as well being either a woman or uh, at the time, maybe I looked younger than I do now, um, or, <laughs> and being a woman of color, people um, uh, not wanting me to be represented by me or thinking that they were going to get um, sort of the level, high level representation. And so there's two ways I would handle it. You know, either, you know, you can take it or leave it, right? This is a resource um, that is small and needed. And so if you don't want to value it, then there's going to be some other person who needs it and can value it. Um, so I, you know, I don't spend, I didn't spend too much time. So I've convinced somebody of my humanity or my value so that, that there's that piece of it. Um, but oftentimes, um, a lot of people just get one over. So I think it's sort of, you have to deal with, um, it's an, a fortunate piece of the, uh, the practice, um, when you don't represent what they imagine an attorney looks like. Um, but, I think um, there are a lot of people who would appreciate the services. So I, I, I sort of didn't uh, give that too much weight in my life. Yeah, yeah. thank you for that example or example and answer. And I think that does answer the two questions in the chat. So thank you. Um, so we have about two minutes left and I just wanted to wrap up with some final thoughts, which is first a thanks to our panel for um, attending today and giving us 
um, insight on on where to start with your pro bono work and things to keep in mind. Um, it sounds like we talked about um, finding what you're passionate in, keeping in mind your ethics requirements and treating your pro bono client just like any other client and being mindful of any, any deadlines that they have. And then also just taking the opportunity to expand um, what your practice area is, whether that's getting more well-versed in it or trying something outside your comfort zone. Um, that might lead you into something that you're really interested in. Um, so uh, we just wanted to highlight that next month is, or October um, being next month, which I guess is next week, um, is um, pro bono month of the BBA. Um, so there'll be upcoming programs and opportunities. So keep an eye out for um, any emails on that front. And then um, also for the pro bonus committee for the new lawyers form, um, I put together a couple events coming up for October and November um, for volunteering, and those will be coming out in a flyer. But um, right now we have on October 28th, um, volunteering with the Charles River Conservancy um, for some cleanup near one of the theaters in Boston. Um, and then also on November 11th, there'll be um, a volunteering um morning session with the uh, Greater Boston Food Bank. And there'll be more to come in the new year. Um, the A lot of volunteering opportunities don't open their schedule for next year until January. Um, so we're going to start with those for now um, as a way to maybe get involved in the community. But if you're looking for more um, pro bono um, opportunities, feel free to keep an eye out for anything coming out from the BBA, or you're more than welcome to um, email us and see if you have any questions and, and we'll do our best to, to guide you. So thank you all very much.